0: you. Um, It is good to um, be with you today, and um, today uh, is a very special day, uh, even as um, Ben was uh, sharing, uh, not only in worship, but he and Kendall were sharing with the, uh, say, families. Uh, We have uh, Kendall's parents in town today, (laughs) so we can give it up for the new grandparents (laughs) again. (laughs) Okay? And my padre is here today. (laughs) So... We're excited, so if you you might actually if you're tapping somebody and he doesn 't respond because you 're calling Roland it 's actually my dad, not me okay <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's the deal there so um guys, it is a pleasure um, to be with you, and as we go through the lenten season, what we've been doing is uh, going through the Gospel of Luke, which is the third of the gospels, and it's particularly important because It was the only gospel that wasn't written by a Jewish author. Uh, You had the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, um, who were both uh, Jewish and, again, our Christianity is a continuation of the Jewish foundations that were laid in the scriptures. um, And it was a fulfillment of all that God prophesied and was saying was to come in his Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, but Luke, obviously you had John as well, but Luke, Luke was a Gentile author, and Luke was very particular because he was um, a person who was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And if you've ever read the book of Acts, it was the early history of the church, and Luke was a physician who was his traveling companion recording as a master historian all that was taking place, not only during Jesus' life, but also post his resurrection what the early church looked like and how the church began and became what it is today. And so Luke is um, phenomenal because he, is a, he pays careful attention, attention to detail, and he helps us from a perspective, if you didn't grow up in the church, um, to really come from the outside in. And really understand what it is that you believe, why you believe it, and why Jesus is literally worth your life. And so um, today what we're, where we find ourselves is actually the uh, Gospel of Luke chapter 23. And let me, uh, let me also say this um, in advance um, so that you know. Our very own um, Pastor Cole Parlier, you may not see him in the coming weeks because sweet Evelise is about to go, (laughs) okay? So she is in her last few days, I mean, before baby number two comes, and then um, Pastor Cole will be on paternity leave. So um, you can congratulate him through uh, text you know, Instagram or whatever you want to do, you know what I mean? But don't expect a response, because he will be with his baby girl number two, and Evelisse's parents are here today as well. So (laughs) there's a day on parents, (laughs) okay? So I was, any day now, I'm excited, okay? So, okay, so here we go. Our focus today is this. Jesus on trial reveals our motives. His crucifixion, our need, and his burial, the pathway to the greatest miracle of all, which is a transformed life by the power of his, not only shed blood, but his resurrection from the dead. And so we're gonna break this message down into those three parts. We're going to talk as we head into the Holy Week and we head into next Friday, Good Friday. We're gonna talk about um, Jesus being on trial, Jesus crucified, and Jesus buried. Because I think that it also has application for us today in terms of how people are responding to this Jesus of Nazareth, how people are understanding him and how they relate to him today. And so we're talking about, again, Jesus on trial jesus crucified and jesus buried let's pray father we thank you so much for your word to us today and we thank you that you've given it to us that we might not only know you understand you but come to love you as you've loved us god we're asking that you would open your word to us today and you would take what's familiar to us and give it new application in our everyday lives father that we might be strengthened in what we've come to believe and devoted to you in a brand new zealous way in jesus name amen Okay, so let's talk first about Jesus on trial. What we want to um, understand is that the trial of Jesus reveals ultimately the true motives of men's and women's hearts. The trial of Jesus reveals what's really going on in their hearts. I remember not actually growing up in the church, and I would, as a person not of faith initially, I would always try to find the reasons why I didn't need to believe. Why I didn't need to believe, because I knew that if I chose to believe, if I chose to actually give myself to Jesus wholeheartedly, that would require something of me. It would require a change of heart. It would require a change of life. It would require a new direction in the way that I had become comfortable in living. And what we see is that this is often a reflection of what the people surrounding Jesus during his earthly ministry were experiencing themselves. So if you have a Bible, let's open to Luke 23. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, Then the whole company, that is after Jesus' arrest, the whole company of them arose and brought him, meaning Jesus, before Pilate, who was the governor at the time. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He's disturbing the normal order of things. He's disturbing the way that the government is actually supposed to be run at this time. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, meaning Jesus, answered him, you've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, Listen, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching people on teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, who was another ruler and an official in that area, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. And it's always interesting how people can rally behind a resistance to Jesus, right? They may have different philosophies, different opinions, but when it comes down to resisting Jesus and who who he claims to be and what he says we need to do, former enemies become friends. And Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. And when we look at this, we see a setup for our culture today we see a setup for our relationship with Jesus today. Everybody, as I said, and we'll get into in a few moments here, have reasons that they're trying to resist Jesus. I'm going to list at least three of them for you. Um, But what we see in the case of Jesus' actual crucifixion, his trial, and then ultimately his trial, crucifixion, and then ultimately resurrection from the dead, they could not find any wrong that Jesus actually committed. True, when we look in our culture at large, we can find plenty of wrong that people have committed in the name of Jesus. How many people would agree that that's true? And that we can find plenty of people who've called themselves Christians who've misrepresented Jesus, and therefore people want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and reject Jesus because they want to reject those who don't look like Jesus. How many people have found that to be true before? But when you actually look at the person of Jesus himself, as Pilate and Herod did in this moment, what they ultimately came to is that we can't find anything wrong with him. We can't find any basis of accusation. Any sin that he's committed, any crime that he's committed, any wrong that he's committed, everything that Jesus has done has been good and right and true. And even though you're bringing him to trial with all of these charges, nothing that you're saying is holding water when we look at the actual person who's king of kings and lord of lords. And what we want to present to you today is that ultimately, if you've been thrown off because of the representation or the association that others in the name of Jesus have had to the King of Kings, reevaluate the person himself today. Reevaluate the person himself today. Because just as Pilate and Herod had heard of Jesus' earthly ministry, the evidence for the historic Jesus of Nazareth's sinless life. Miracles, death, burial, and resurrection are available and abundant. Now, I want to give you a little starter kit. Many of you are familiar with these books, but if you're not yet, I, I just want to uh, give you some good reading, right? Leaders are readers, right? And so you need to read your Bible, yes, but there also helps in addition to the scripture itself that will help you understand who this historic Jesus of Nazareth is. And we have a series that was actually written uh, several years ago, and it's been written um, in uh, continuation in different themes and different topics, um, talking about different subjects that will help us understand the historic Jesus of Nazareth. It was a man named Lee Strobel as the author, and he was actually a Chicago boy, okay? He was a Chicago boy, and he used to write for the Chicago Tribune. He was an award-winning investigative journalist, and for years of his life, he was an atheist. And after years of marriage, his wife became Christian. And he was so angry about it that he actually went on a two-year search because it was affecting the way that they were living. It was affecting the way that they were thinking about things and dealing. And so he, using his investigative skills, went on a two-year search to try to bring his wife to her senses, He actually said, I'm going to talk to all of the scholars that I can in all of academia, in all the universities, in all the manners of research. And so he talked to uh, people in this uh, particular, we'll leave the uh, picture up there, in this particular book. He was talking to the historians in the case for Christ, trying to get a clear picture about the historic Jesus of Nazareth. Did he really live? Did he really work miracles? Did he really die? Was he really resurrected from the dead? Then he talked to a group of philosophers and wrote another book called The Case for Faith, talking about all of the philosophical objections towards Christianity, right? What about the issue of suffering? What about the issue of different religions? What about the issue of all the different oppositions that people philosophically have towards God? He then wrote a book scientifically. I appreciated this, right? Because everything, before I went into the ministry, I wanted to be a physician, right? So everything was empirical for me. I had to have the evidence, right? And so he talked to um, astronomers. He talked to biochemists. He talked to biologists and wrote a book called The Case for a Creator, giving the evidence for a God who exists in our world today. Then I don't have the picture up here, but he actually talked to anthropologists talking about what about all of the common stories of creation and, you know, wh- where they come about and how they overlap and everything like that. And where is the real Jesus in that story? Was it an original story or was it something that was just copied down by other cultures and traditions? And he wrote a uh, book called The Case for the Real Jesus, Right talking about the anthropological background. And so I commend these books to you because if you need evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is who the scripture actually says he is, there's an abundance for you. There is an abundance for you, just like there was for Herod and Pilate. You can get answers for your faith. But the truth is, is when you get this evidence, then what you see is that the world will quickly embrace Jesus as a humanitarian figure. How many people know that's true? Nobody resists Jesus as a humanitarian figure. They're like, (coughs) love thy neighbor, right? (coughs) Forgive people, right? Yeah, we, we all need a little of that, right? But when it comes to the world having to deal with Jesus as king, as he said he was, the world will attempt to place Jesus on trial when his authority ultimately crosses our will. We like him as a humanitarian figure, but when he's described as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and begins to cross our will, say, This is how I created you, and this is how I require you to live, then we want to put Jesus on trial. There was a famous philosopher and author named Aldous Huxley. Anybody remember him from your classes in the university? Aldous Huxley. He was an English writer and uh, philosopher. He actually said this interestingly, and I think it speaks to the motivation that people have for putting Jesus on trial. He said, I have motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. You see what he's saying there? He's saying basically, if I find that there, if I convince myself that there's no meaning in the world, then ultimately I get to do what I want to do. If I convince myself that there is no God, or if I convince myself that ultimately all roads lead to God, and it's just about me finding the way to him, then ultimately I could do what I want to do. There's no governor, there's no authority. Ultimately, I'm my own free agent. But what Jesus is ultimately saying is that if you put me to trial, you'll see that I am not only a good teacher, not only am I a prophet, but I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. And the essence of the gospel is heard when Jesus ultimately said this. Everybody's familiar with John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But the Words of Jesus continued when he said this in John three seventeen. He said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And when he says through him, he means only him. Jesus again later said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, ultimately because of what we would see here, right? Not only that he was the only sinless one, but that he had to die sacrificially, for the sins of humanity. And that according to his own word be raised again three days later for the salvation of the world. He says, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Here we go. Light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Meaning that they were resistant and opposite and contrary to the design of God. He says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, what he's saying is, it's almost like we by nature are like roaches. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, we live in Chicago. It's like, listen, when the light comes on, what happens? Naturally, in and of ourselves, we scatter, right? It's like, don't expose me. Don't show what it is that might actually be going on in me that's contrary to God's design or his manner for living in my life. We want to avoid the light as long as we can so that we can do what we want to do. But when we actually submit to God, we come into the light and say, God, I'm coming into agreement with your way. I'm coming into agreement with your commands to show that I've not been able to do this in and of myself, but it's only through the power of your word and the Holy Spirit working in me that I'm able to live according to your design. He breaks us ultimately of self-sufficiency. He breaks us ultimately of pride. He breaks us ultimately of doing for yourself trying to reach God on your own. He said, you can't. We've all blown it. We've all made mistakes. And the older we get, the more we feel weighed down by them until we're finally liberated by the cross and the resurrection that Jesus provides for us. But the trial ultimately shows us what's going on until then. And I I need to go further and say that it's not just people who just want to do what they want to do that put Jesus on trial but it's also what we see here it says in verse 18 of chapter 23 when Jesus was on trial going back to his um, crucifixion it says they all cried out together away with this man away with this man away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time, Pilate, he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? He said, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to them. And so what you see is that ultimately there's always going to be an exchange. Whenever you stick to your guns doing what you want to do, there is going to be an exchange one way or another. Either you cling to and receive the author of life, or you have a murderer released to you instead. Either you cling to the author of life who's trying to lead you into life and life abundant, or death is ultimately the ultimate reward. And in this case of Jesus' trial, they chose Barabbas, not only the insurrectionist, but the murderer. But we see that Jesus crucified, number two, the crucifixion of Jesus gives us our need for a savior. And it says in verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene. They seized Simon of Cyrene, who was just walking along the road that day, if you can imagine this, who was coming in from the country, minding his own business, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Can you imagine that scene? Jesus is getting ready to, going through his trial. They were getting ready to crucify him. They're like, hey, listen, Jesus is too beaten down and whipped and, uh, like, broken to carry this piece of wood all the way to the place of his death. So, hey, you over there, I'm going to grab you, put the cross on you, and you're going to carry it. And I'd say to you, this is giving us a good picture of the second reason that people want to throw off faith, right? Not just because people want to do what they want to do, but also because in their lifetimes they've been forced to carry a cross. They've been forced to carry a cross that they never really understood or never really was their own, and then ultimately they said, I want to buck religion because I've never met the person who was carrying the cross for me. I've actually just had it placed on me, but I don't understand why it's there, why these rules, why these traditions, why this religion, and so I want nothing to do with it. Anybody remember moments like that? You had to go to church. You had to basically get up in the morning when you'd rather roll over in bed and sleep. Somebody in your house will say, you're going to be there. Why? Because I'm going to be. And unless you, uh, unless I die myself, you're going to show up there that day. And you almost feel like this Simon of Cyrene. I was just minding my business, trying to live life, and somebody forced a cross on me. And we see this with Simon. He said, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting him. I don't even understand why. Simon's just carrying it. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, meaning when Jesus is actually in the flesh in their presence, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, meaning Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, meaning Jesus and the criminals. And the criminals. They crucified Jesus. And the criminals. So remember, Jesus was right there in the middle, hung between two criminals. And I think that's at least the third reason that a a lot of times people throw off faith, right? It's not just because they want to do what they want to do. It's not just because they were forced to carry a cross they didn't understand. But then number three, it's because of who Jesus in his crucifixion is associated with. All of a sudden, you see, I don't want to be a Christian because I'm surrounded by all of these people who call themselves Christians, but they're nothing but hypocrites. That used to be my excuse, right? I used to be growing up in Charleston, which was called the Holy City, right? Not much holy about it. But the thing is, is that all of a sudden you see all these churches everywhere, friends going to church every Sunday, but they were worse than me, in my estimation. I was like, when we go to the parties, I'm having to rescue you. And then you're telling me, let's sleep it off and go to church in the morning. I'm like, forget that. I'm going to party and not go to church, right? (laughs) Right? And so Jesus is sit, sitting there hanging between two criminals. And people are like, I can justify my rejection of Jesus because ultimately of who he's associated with. But again, we see that Jesus is ultimately showing on the cross his grace, both, for the, both to the people who are on the cross next to him and for the crowd that would accuse his associations. Jesus on the cross there hanging between criminals. We continue to read. He said, For Behold, the days are coming, all that stuff. Two others were criminals. They hung next to him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one is right, one his left. And Jesus said, Father, Sorry, I'll slow down now. Father, forgive them. Jesus is praying on the cross. For they know not what they do. These people who crucified me, they don't even understand what they're doing. They haven't done the research. They haven't actually followed me. They haven't walked with me. They don't understand what they're doing. So God, I'm asking you, even in my death, to have mercy on them. And then that good news for all of us? Whether you grew up in the church or not, that even in the time of his death, Jesus is crying out, have mercy on these people who don't even understand that they're crucifying the author of life. And they cast lots in the midst of him praying that to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. Right? There was also an inscription over him, the only charge they can bring in front um, before him. They used to hang the charge above the criminals when they crucified them, saying this is what they had done. The only cr- charge they could... Hang above Jesus' cross, was this is the king of the Jews, his identity, who he claimed to be. One of the criminals, though, who was there, hanged, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Aren't you the Christ? If you're so good, if you're so great, God, save yourself and us. And because of the issues that people have dealt with, the experiences that people have had in their own lives, that's a lot of times how people respond to God, right? If there's really a God, I need Him to show up right here, right now and save me, change my situation. Even in their own death, they're on their way out, receiving the consequences of of not only their own sin, but what's been done to them. And they're railing against God. You'll always have people like that. But the other There was another on that cross next to Jesus. The other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, meaning Jesus, said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is good news. This is good news. Because even if other people are railing around you, you don't have to be part of that, even on your way out. (laughs) Let let me me tell you something. Jesus, Jesus is very plain here when he makes it clear that we're all going to reap what we sow. Isn't that the truth of life? Oh, Okay, let me tell you, it's going to be a truth of life that no matter what we would prefer otherwise, we are all going to reap what we sow in our relationships and how we take care of our bodies and how we take care of our minds, whatever have you, right? Our relationship with God, we're going to reap what we sow. And ultimately, what we see is this man, this criminal next to Jesus understood that he was going to die because of his wrongdoing. And what we see is that even when he came to his senses about his own sin in the midst of his own death, he's saying, Jesus, when you bring your kingdom, please remember me. Now, what we see here is a cl- one of the clearest representations that salvation is by faith, th- by grace through faith alone. Why? Because that man had no more time to do anything right. <laughs> he was on the cross and he was going to die. Right. Jesus didn't say, I forgive you. So now you're off the cross he would die that day for a sin that's why jesus said i tell you the truth today you'll see me in paradise which means wait hold on i'm not but i thought i was going to be forgiven yes forgiven but you're going to see me sooner rather than later (laughs) you hear that he's saying by grace through faith alone but at the same time what we see is that jesus is offering even to the last moment an opportunity for people to turn Even to the last moment, an opportunity for people to turn and put their trust in him, put their faith in him and ask, cry out for his mercy and forgiveness. It doesn't matter how long you've been resistant to God. It doesn't matter what your sin has gotten you into, what type of broken relationships, family or mental state you have. God says, even up to the last moment, if you cry out to me, if you put your faith in me, I can change you and make you new and give you an eternal home that's different than what your actions actually deserve. And what we have to see here is that ultimately God's reminding us that we cannot, we cannot judge whether or not people are deserving of God's forgiveness. Because ultimately, none of us are. How many people could say amen to that? When Jesus was crying out, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they've done. Ultimately, that was a prayer not just for those who were there in Jesus' time, but for you and me as well. Forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And ultimately, it doesn't matter how far off somebody's been, how bad it is what they've done, Jesus can forgive because of himself hanging on that cross. And Jesus, on trial, ultimately led to his crucifixion and showed humanity at at large their need for a Savior. Not just you, not just me, but all of us. And people who think that, number three, Jesus is buried in our culture, buried, the need for Jesus or the idea of Jesus is buried in our culture, misunderstand the fact that the burial of Jesus ultimately paves the way for his greatest miracle of all his resurrection from the dead. I'm glad Jesus was buried. Anybody else? I'm glad Jesus was buried. (laughs) Because ultimately, without his crucifixion, his death, and his burial, where they wrapped him up in those burial cloths and put him in a known tomb, ultimately, there was not going to be no power to ultimately supernaturally change your life and mine. People are going to come to the fact that Jesus himself was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And that's our appeal to you today. Regardless of the cultural pressures, don't consent. Don't consent when people are putting him on trial without reason, when they're trying to crucify him without reason. Don't consent. Be different. Stand apart. Take a stand. This righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God, because he was looking forward to what was coming. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no, other <coughs> no one had ever been laid. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then he returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now I love this because ultimately this is setting us up for Easter, right? It's setting us up for Easter. Yes, next week we're going to talk about emotionally healthy, spiritual healthy life, but that's also talking up, talking about setting you up for resurrection life, right? So many of you have been like talking about how you've been bound in emotional torment, emotional bondage, right? But God can resurrect that, right? God can cause things that were binding you before to ultimately be loosened. And what we see is that when he went into this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, it was actually (laughs) setting us up for a verifiable supernatural miracle. A verifiable supernatural miracle. Now, I'm saying verifiable supernatural miracle because some of us take for granted this story because we've grown up in church and just say, yes, Jesus was resurrected from the dead because that's what I've heard since I was this high. But what I'm saying to you as somebody who's come from the outside in is I needed help with the evidence. Do you you understand? It wasn't an assumption to me that Jesus was actually physically resurrected from the dead. Initially, that sounded like a bedtime story to me. But when we did the research, then all of a sudden we saw that with this man, Joseph of Arimathea, there was a known physical tomb, right? How many people have family members who buy burial plots? Burial plots, right, where you have the grandmother, you have the grandfather, right? My dad told me to just burn him and scatter his ashes over Jamaica, but that's cool, you know? (laughs) The thing is, is that other people have burial plots, right? Burial plots where you can know and go and visit family and, you know, remember their memory, right? This is what will happen with Jesus. And the people would tell whether or not the body was still there. Jesus would have a physical death preparing the way for a bodily, not simply a spiritual resurrection. And that's good news to anybody who's ever been sick, had family members who were diseased or passed away because of that disease. The good news is that there's going to be not just a spiritual resurrection from the dead, but a physical bodily resurrection that was verified through Jesus being not only crucified but buried, and then his tomb was empty after his resurrection. And so ultimately, anybody ever gone to the gym before and said, listen, I'm working as hard as I can, but it ain't quite what I want it to be yet. The promise of the resurrection is a glorified body. Anybody say (laughs) amen to that? Come on now. Come on now, a glorified body, so that when I put that, when I slapped my own hand, I had to do it last night, put that crumble cookie down. <laughs> I would have to say, don't speed your way to the grave, Rollin. Don't speed your way to the grave. But even if you do, there's a bodily resurrection to come. And ultimately, that's what Jesus is calling all of us into. Not just a transformed heart, not just a transformed mind, but a transformed body, a resurrected body and eternal life in that resurrected state. And for you and for me, you need to start researching not just what Jesus has done, but I think so many people throw off their devotion to Jesus because they don't know what they're looking forward to. Do you you understand what I'm saying? You don't know what you're looking forward to. When he's talking about the kingdom, He's not just talking about us all being some chubby cherub babies. You know what I mean? (laughs) Stroking harps. How great are God. Right? With little wings. I I don't know that anybody's going to have wings. I hate to break it to you. (laughs) Okay? But the point is we need to know what the hope is that we're actually clinging to so that when it comes to the point of decision, we cling to Jesus who was crucified, buried, and then raised again because nothing's going to replace or be able to shake me from that promise that he's given me. Do you hear that? Anybody ever had a, pre- well, let's talk, talk about dogs. I'm, I presently do not have a dog in my home, okay? I'll just admit that. We, we, we moved our dog on as we moved to our new location. But if you specifically have ever had a dog before, have you ever had to wrestle a bone from a dog? (laughs) Anybody at all? What was that like for you? Was that pleasant? (laughs) Were you scared? Uh, Yeah, some of you know, I'll just snap, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's like, that's how you should be with your faith. Because of the promise of what's offered me in Christ, because of his verifiable life, death, burial, and resurrections, there's nothing that can take this hope from me. And if you've only gone through the motions of showing up at church because it's a social thing or it's where you find community, it's good to start with, but that can't be where you end. Because ultimately, when your community fails you, when somebody disappoints you, anybody ever been there before? when sometimes the very people who are calling on the name of Jesus do something not like him, you'll be tempted to do what others have done and throw out the baby with the bathwater because your anchor was not the king, but it was the people who should have represented him. And what we're saying to you in this Lenten season is ultimately come to the king. Come to the one who's carried the cross for you and invite others to do the same. In Jesus' name. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us your word, not only to reflect on, but you've given it to us to ultimately change us from the inside out. And God, I'm asking you that today, by the testimony of your word, you would give us the ability to move past all of the things that have kept us from you up to this point. Father, the false promises of hedonism, promising us happiness and peace, but how often that fails us over and over again. God, we pray you would deliver us from that. God, we pray that you would deliver us from our disappointments. Father, when we've associated you with those who've misrepresented you, and, God, we pray that you would also help us who have been forced to carry across to actually meet you ourselves. That, God, this might be a moment where we're anchored in the true author of life for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what we're going to do is, as we go into our second song, we're going to celebrate communion. If you've not uh, gotten a communion cup, they're here on your right and on your left. Please take one, and we'll celebrate the sacrament together.